I'm afraid that it will it will um, it, people will hear what I'm what I'm not saying. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, whether or not this is the case, young people, and we've talked, Sean and I, Sean McDowell and I have talked with, with lots of them, and we have a chapter on this in our new book coming out, see evangelical Christians as so politically motivated and so uh, desirous of power and so concerned with judging and condemning other people that regardless of whether or not the claims that they make are true, they're just so unpalatable and unlikable that they don't get a hearing. What's the path forward? We're raising a generation to believe that Adam and Eve were correct to take the fruit. I mean, fundamentally, when you say you live for yourself, you're really basically saying you get to make your own values up. And so how do we as a church raise a generation, become a generation that is here to love others more than we love ourselves, to submit to Christ? Hello everyone, Dennis Allen along with Raymond Monroe on The Disciple Dilemma. We're back again, part two, with professor and author John Marriott, who has written wonderful books. We're focusing on two of them, The Anatomy of Deconversion and the other one, Set Adrift. Today's part two is about Set Adrift, co-authored with professor and apologist Sean McDowell at Biola. We're talking about deconstruction. Can Christians do that? What does it mean to deconstruct exactly? What are the implications behind it? And how should we think about it as believers when our friends and family walk up and say that they're deconstructing? John Marriott's got some great answers for us, great counsel. This is going to be a terrific podcast. Stay with us. Here we go. John, let's let's shift a little bit and talk about your new book, Set Adrift. It's really fascinating. In the book, Set Adrift, uh, Sean and I address the question of if someone wants to rethink their faith, if someone says, I think that Jesus is the way, I'm just not sure what the way of Jesus looks like. I, I was raised in a particular kind of a church. I was handed this version of Christianity. And now I'm starting to wonder if this is, uh, for, for lack of a better term, the pure, unadulterated understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. We want to help people think through that process well, but we don't want to tell them exactly what to believe. And and so we say to them at the beginning of the book, if you're going to deconstruct, pull apart, and then put back together a faith, you need to first establish some boundaries to do that. And the first boundary would be that at the end of the day, you need to make sure that Jesus is Lord of your life. I'm, I am convinced, after talking with enough people who have left the faith, that a significant component of that of their faith was lacking in that they believed the right things, but there was never any real submission and a bowing of the knee to Jesus where they were ready to make him the king, king of their life. And, and we say, if you can rethink your faith, it needs, and you're going to pull apart the house of faith that you've constru- had constructed for you. It needs to stop at the foundation. The foundation needs to be Jesus. Now you're welcome to ask lots of questions about Jesus and, and think about some of the things that he taught, but, but you need to recognize that he is the Lord, that he's the king, and that you're a member of his community. And as such, that you need to uh, you need to 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 make him uh, the you know the captain of your ship. The next thing that we say is that you need to re- recognize that the term Christian has historically meant something. And at, at its most basic, there are a set of beliefs that have been identified by the church universal going all the way back, almost right to the beginning. We call these the ecumenical creeds, and they lay out, the, in the most broadest sense, theologically what 
makes someone a Christian. We think of like Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. And within those fence posts of the creeds, we talk about there being a large pasture for people to be a free range believer, right? You, you can't transgress whether or not Jesus, the boundary of whether or not Jesus was both divine and human and consider yourself theologically Christian in any really meaningful way. You, you might still be born again and have a misunderstanding of, of who Jesus is, but you wouldn't be in a meaningful way, theologically Christian, but you can ask lots of questions as to, well, how does that look? And what does it mean for him to be both man and, and God? Um, there's, I think many of our of your listeners would be familiar with all of the different uh, different view books that are out there, right? Four views on women's ministry, three views on on spiritual gifts, five views on the end times, or five hundred views on the end times. Right? There's all kinds of books out there. Now, we're not saying that you can just pick and choose whichever one you like, but we are saying that there are lots of different views out there that you should be able to, as a Christian, within these basic bounds of the essential Christian beliefs, which again are laid out in in in, in the early creeds. You should be able to, before Jesus as Lord, say, I'm going to go to your word and I'm going to do my very best to listen to the arguments, both for and advance against. And, and, and I'm going to construct a, a, a belief that is robustly historic, orthodoxly Christian, and one that before you, Lord Jesus, I think reflects what your word teaches. And so I think that those those are the important boundaries. And the last one that we, we touch on is that that in all of this, you need to decide who and what is going to be the final ultimate authority in your life. And are you going to approach the Bible and stand over the Bible and determine whether or not this passage should be included? And maybe this passage, the Israelites maybe really misunderstood and, and we're getting their view of God rather than this being a, an entire revelation of God. We really try and run the argument in the book and encourage young people to, to choose the historic Orthodox understanding of the Christian Bible, and that it that it that it speaks truly in everything that it affirms, and that it should be the ultimate and final authority in our life as we're trying to follow Jesus. So, so in in response to the question about Christian liberty, you're weighing in saying that you need to be Orthodox, and Orthodoxy then would mean uh, holding to the historical creeds, the Apostles and Nicene Creed as a way of giving the boundaries, what, what it does to mean to be a Christian. Yes. And, and, and one last thing that comes to mind and, and, you know, I'm a, I'm an expat, I'm a Canadian living in the United States and I've been down here now for, I think 18 years. My wife is uh, American. My kids were both born here. One thing that I think that really drives the tribalism that we see sometimes even within, within the church and, and an inability to allow some some grace when it comes to Christian liberty that's different in the United States and Canada that maybe I see as an outsider is that in Canada we have about five political parties that people can choose from and those parties to varying degrees would reflect aspects of what you know historically you would have recognized as traditional Christian values and and so you can at least in the past there was a, it wasn't an issue so much who you voted for because you could justify your vote because there there was enough in all of the parties right enough christian values and held by all the parties but i think in the united states when you have a two party system and those parties continue to head in polar opposite directions that um when especially when it comes to the 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 really 
big significant issues that so many people care about, like what's being taught in our schools and gender and, and abortion, all of those. I, I think that that also leads to a frustration and, and, and a sense of if you don't vote the way that I want you to vote, and if you don't agree with the views that, that, that this party has, then maybe, maybe you're, you know, you're not even really a Christian. John, I'm thinking about something here, and I, I want to make a preface announcement to our group, and then I want to bring you in to kind of talk about this a little bit. So, folks, we say this a lot on the Disciple Dilemma. We are not attacking churches. We're not attacking pastors. We're not attacking Christianity. We're here to act as sort of provocative questions for all folks to think about. So the expression we sometimes use is, we're not asking you to buy the car, just take it out for a test drive. Having said that, John, um, as I think about your new book, Set Adrift, and folks, you're seeing the copy of the, the book up on the cover here, and they're they're available wherever you want to reach out in the book world to get them. They're out on the online now and available since the uh, 29th of August. Congratulations, John, by the way, on getting that out. Thank you. <laughs> Along with his other books, this guy's got four others plus his latest fifth, and he's got another one, 2024, coming out, which I'm, I'm going to just tease you guys with, and we'll tell you about the title at the end of this. John... Here's the setup then, author, professor, apologist, philosopher, sociologist. When I look at the criteria that you set up in anatomy of deconversion and the conversation you have in Set Adrift, I'm thinking about D.A. Carson's book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, and the fact that we've evolved into a world where tolerance is no longer the understanding of the other person's point of view, and then simply saying, I disagree, however, the fellowship remains intact, to... Two different groups of folks. This is the Christian liberty conversation Raymond had a minute ago. We've got one crew sitting in the pews who has an incredibly high tolerance for ambiguity. They have a very high distaste for authority. They are very abstract in their thinking. They have a very low tolerance for claims of truth. That's one set of folks in the pew that you've described. There's another set of folks in the pew who, and please folks, don't get mad, here I go, they, they have a very concrete, sometimes highly simplistic, highly specific, routinized answer for all questions, certainty of knowledge. By the way, John's got some interesting resources on his website about if you know something to be true, you may want to rethink that. My question is this, John, are those two sets of descriptions that I've just thrown out there supportive and in parallel with what you're thinking is about, both in deconversion and in deconstruction? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think it's very hard for each to relate to the other because the second group that you mentioned will, I think, always find the first group threatening because they're willing to ask questions they're willing to be open to different understandings. And sometimes that can feel as though that maybe something very in, very, in, um, very sacred and something that gives the second group a lot of security is being shaken and being challenged. I think the first group that, that you described as being maybe more open and, and inquisitive and, and just abstract in their thinking uh, is threatened by the other group or frustrated with the, the second group because they see them as rigid and stiff and not really seeking after truth, but really just looking to confirm their biases. And uh, the first group that you mentioned, you listed a number of the characteristics. Uh, 
if you were to put together a profile of folks who are most likely to deconvert, statistically speaking, you would, they would be people who tend to be a bit above average in intelligence, have at least some university education, that they are tolerant of ambiguity, so they don't feel like they have to take a hard position on certain issues. They would be people who uh, have a low tolerance for uh, for uh, like a right-wing sort of authoritarian uh, structure. They would be folks who uh, are open to experience. That's a personality trait that we all have that doesn't seem to change over time. Um, and 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 for whatever reason, those folks are the 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 people who would most likely deconvert if you're just looking at things statistically. And and, and if they're in a group in a, in a church setting where they have the almost the polar opposite going on, uh, that that might be that might even cause them to be more frustrated and and maybe even um, sort of speed up the exit process for them. What's the path forward? We're raising a generation to believe that Adam and Eve were correct to take the fruit. I mean, it, it, fundamentally, it. when you say you live for yourself, you're really basically saying you get to make your own values up. And so how do we as a church raise a generation, become a generation that is here to love others more than we love ourselves, to submit to Christ? Yeah, that's a great—I think your observation is, is right on. I think that's exactly what we're seeing. We are telling young people that it is right to take the fruit because then they'll be the ones who get to determine what's right and, and determine what's wrong. So I think that you're right on the money there. And it's and I think it's incredibly attractive. I I think that I think that part of the answer to your question lies in young people seeing the church and young people seeing individual Christians as beautiful, loving, caring people um, as opposed to the way that they see them now. Now, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm hesitant to raise this because I'm afraid that it will, it will, um, it, people will hear what I'm, what I'm not saying. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, whether or not this is the case, young people and we've talked, Sean and I, Sean McDowell and I have talked with, with lots of them, and we have a chapter on this in our new book coming out, see evangelical Christians as so politically motivated and so uh, desirous of power and so concerned with judging and condemning other people that regardless of whether or not the claims that they make are true, they're just so unpalatable and unlikable that they don't get a hearing. And I think that there might be something to that. I think that we would all agree that if uh, a really fundamentalist form of Islam was true, like let's say the Taliban, I'm not sure that any of us would ever want to adopt it because we wouldn't be able to get past the fact that we find it so offensive. And if that's the problem that young people are having with the church, whether or not it's true that what they're seeing and, and, and having an accurate represent, uh, perception of, of the evangelical world or it's just uh, their misperception. I think the thing to counter that would be to see the church uh, 
really loving each other really well, right? As you as you guys know more, more than I do, Jesus says that this is how the world will know that uh, that we're his followers if we love one another. If he he says that you know Francis Schaeffer makes the point that the world will have the right to come to us and say that Jesus isn't even who he claimed to be because if he was then you guys would be more unified with one another because the world will know that he is who he claimed to be because his followers in John 17, he says, will be, will be one. Right. And so I, I think that that's a big part of it. And in, in, in first Peter, Peter writes, and he says that what, what drew them to Jesus, what drew the disciples to Jesus was his glory and his moral virtue, right? His beauty, his goodness uh, as a person. And, and I look back on my my uh, sort of entrance into the Christian world. And if you had asked me 10 years ago why I'm a Christian, I would have given you a very rational argument why it's the best worldview that's out there. Today, I would probably say, well, to be honest with you, I think there's a lot of different reasons why I'm a Christian. But maybe the most significant is, is because I encountered some Christians who I just loved because they were great people. They were kind and loving and had, you know, stood for something. And, and yet they accepted me where I was at and was, were willing to work with me. And I, 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 I think we might have to change the view of, of you know, millennial and, and Gen Z folks on the church, um, maybe one person at a time, by being that kind of a person and being those groups of people um, that reflect Jesus much better than maybe we have. What would you like the soundbite for our listeners to hear on set adrift as we get ready to wrap this podcast up. I've got elders, small group leaders, pastors, staff, ministry folks, um, and people who are just walking alongside one another. And they're going like set adrift. Wait a minute. This is Christianity, man. I don't want to be just drifting. What, what is it? What do you want to tell us about this? (laughs) And we walk away haunted about this book. Uh, That set adrift is a book for anyone who believes that Jesus is the way, but they're not quite sure of what the way of Jesus looks like. And its intent and its purposes is to help you rethink your faith in a way that allows you to land within the historic Orthodox Christian faith in a way that is reflective of, oh boy, I'm trying to avoid the using the word authentic because that's the problem. That's the problem. But uh, no, yeah, yeah I would say that you're, it's a... It's, you're bringing it's a up something interesting. John, uh, Oz Guinness wrote a book called In Two Minds back in 90... 90- yes, on the dilemma of doubt. And, you know, he's all... He, thematically, it's fascinating. He's saying the doubts are going to come. Don't panic. And just because it causes you to alter some of your thinking and the way you view things different than other people around you, don't panic. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, that's what I, exactly what I'm saying. If that's what Oz Guinness said, then that's what I'm saying. John, as we wrap up today, folks are going to want to take a look at what you're doing. How do we find you on the website? And then, of course, let's talk uh, also as you finish up about your website. Tell us what's on it. Okay, so you can find the website johnmarriott.org. And Marriott is spelled two R's, two T's, just like the hotel. So John Marriott, J-O-H-N.org. The website's called Found and Lost. And it's for people who are struggling to maintain their faith and for those who are trying to understand why other people are walking away. And the resources that you can find there are for those folks who are afraid that they're losing their faith. I have some articles written there to help you think through that process, uh, to, to, to maybe help you avert that process. And for those who are trying to understand deconversion 
uh, maybe why someone in your family is going through it and how you can maybe best respond to it. There's a section there. And then I also have a third section that's uh, stories of people who have returned from their loss of faith, because I think it's really important to know that not every uh, Peter ends up being a Judas, right? Both of them deny Jesus, but one of them, you know, returns, repents and returns and the and the other one and doesn't and sometimes i think that when we have a loved one going through a crisis like this and even if they walk away to remember that that's not the end of the story right uh, people are like books and you never know how they end until you get to the last chapter and and um, until that happens there's always there's always hope and these stories can encourage people uh, that uh, some of the most hardened and and uh, hardened people who are as far away from jesus as you can imagine some of them have have come back you have got to take a look at this website. And while John's been describing this, you've seen the marker for it with www.johnmarriott.org. And uh, there's a lot of resources here. Don't pass this up. It's a fascinating walk. For parents, it will be very helpful for you as much as it will be for anybody who is having a faith crisis, as John described that. So please take a look at his website. We're really thrilled uh, that you have been a part of our adventure today, Professor John Marriott, author John Marriott, husband John Marriott, and the guy who is helping us think more about our faith, John Marriott. Thank you for being with us on The Disciple Dilemma today. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Would you help the church think more about discipleship? Would you help us get the conversation started to talk about the biblical discipleship Jesus gave us? Please follow us. Our website, www.thediscipledilemma.com. You can find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and all the RSS feeds. If you'd follow or like us, you'll help us get leverage in the digital marketplace to talk about the fact that discipleship needs to be talked about. And as always, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.